0: Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Okay, Google. What is Codebreaker?
1: Codebreaker, a person who solves a code or codes.
0: That's not bad. Okay, Google. Artificial Intelligence Definition
1: Artificial Intelligence, the theory and development of computer systems able to perform tasks that normally require human intelligence.
0: Okay, Google. What is Siri?
1: Siri is a built-in intelligent assistant that enables users of Apple iPhone All
0: right, enough talking to the computers. Let's talk to Genevieve, a.k.a. Eve. Eve, will you tell me how old you are?
2: I'm four.
0: Do you like using the phone or do you...
2: I like using the phone.
0: Tell me about Siri. Do you like using Siri?
2: Mm, Kind of.
0: What do you use it for?
2: I use it for emergencies.
0: Do you remember an emergency with your mom?
3: Yeah.
0: Codebreaker is back with our second season where we will decipher our complicated feelings about technology with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes a sense of dread. As you may remember, we launch all of our episodes at once, so you can binge them Netflix-style. But there is a catch. There is a secret code hidden in every episode. To binge our show, you need to crack the code to unlock the next episode. Otherwise, you'll have to wait to hear from us every week. This season, we've got one question in mind. Four little words. The answer? Not so simple.
4: Oh, jeez. Uh, uh, oh. Oh. Uh, well. uh. <laughs> I hope so.
0: Can it save us? We are asking this question about one kind of technology in every episode. Today's episode, voice and face recognition technology. How machine learning, artificial intelligence, and other algorithmic software tools are helping computers wake up to hear us and see us in new ways. As these tools creep deeper into our lives, are they helping machines know us better than we know ourselves? Are we okay with that? You're going to hear more from Eve and how she used Siri to save her mother. You're gonna hear about a man who found his voice when his hands would no longer do his bidding. And a story about how computers know more about who we want than we do ourselves.
2: Bless technology for being able to find that for me because realistically, I probably wouldn't have even given him a chance.
0: So, voice and face recognition. Can it save us? We're going to be talking about all kinds of saving this season. Saving money, saving time, saving you from loneliness, saving our privacy. Every once in a while, it's straight up life-saving, though. So let's get back to Eve. Do you feel like the iPhone is a good thing? Yes. Do you like the voice of Siri? Is it a nice voice? Uh, no. (laughs) She has a special relationship with Siri. Here's Eve's mom.
3: My name is Liz Garrods. Almost two years ago to the day, I uh, was diagnosed with an autonomic nervous system disorder known as POTS, which stands for Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome.
0: Uh-huh.
3: So basically what happens is uh, the blood flows differently in my body. So a lot of times it will pool at my feet. My heart rate will increase from sitting to standing, And then my blood pressure drops. And what can happen is I usually faint. How often? It could be up to three times a day. I'm usually out anywhere between 30 seconds to a minute and a half. Um, So what happened that day is I had the two girls. Genevieve was just shy of three. My daughter, Scarlett, was four months. And we were just about to go outside and play. And I had gone from a sitting to a standing position and started to feel really dizzy. And before I could get back to sitting down, I fainted. I had hit my head against the table and then slammed my head on the ground. Uh, I was unconscious for over 45 minutes. Finally, when I came Around, there were emergency personnel all over my house. And my nervous reaction is to laugh, so I started laughing. And then I asked them where they came from and how they got here. And they said, we think your daughter called us.
0: Do you remember anything that happened that day?
3: Uh, I did, just like mom. (laughs) Genevieve and Scarlett were there by themselves, and thankfully... We had taught Genevieve how to use Siri on the iPhone in case something ever happened to me. And sure enough, later she said, I pushed the button. And that was just kind of her explanation as to how we got emergency services there. Um, I had 911, that's all I just remember. She left the phone on so dispatch could hear my four-month-old crying in the background. And they were also able to locate where the call was coming from. Mm. We started training her to do that because I was fainting so often. And so we just told her to hold the button down until she heard a beep. Then we told her that she would have to say either dial 911 or dial emergency, and it took her quite some time because at two, she couldn't articulate uh, like an adult can, obviously. And so she would get very frustrated with Siri.
0: Can you tell me, if you were going to call 911 right now, how you would do it?
3: Um, I say, uh, okay, Siri. She still gets frustrated with Siri. We all do. Yeah. <laughs> It really is amazing, it's kind of that, to watch this younger generation grow up with this technology um, at their hands. And I guess we won't ever really know if it's, if it's something that is positive or negative to, for them until we get further down the road. Uh, but in this instance, it was definitely a uh, lifesaver
4: for me.
0: It might have been a lifesaver for Liz Garretts. For the rest of us, this technology is becoming more normal, more reliable every day, also more common. Apple, Google, Amazon has its version.
5: Tonight's forecast has clear skies and a low of 51 degrees.
0: Let's acknowledge that a lot of these forms of software we're using more and more actually have strange fictional origins. Google Now is part of a plan for Google to become the computer in Star Trek, something you can have a full conversation with as it follows your commands and provides you with information. They're actually getting kind of close.
4: There's such deep technology and capabilities we have today versus all the science fiction movies that we all thought of uh, you know, two decades ago. That is Aparna Chenapragata.
0: She's the Senior Director of Product Management at Google, and she works on Google Now. She says the company is trying to make its assistant software as convenient as possible, learning from your behavior to know the information you want without you having to ask. It does this by listening in the background. People in the tech world call this contextual awareness. But there's a creepy factor, too. I had this conversation with my mom recently where I was showing her Google Now and showing her how you could ask it all these different questions and it would answer for you. And she brought up this point where she basically said, it's kind of weird, right? Because it's listening to you all the time. And I said, no, 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 it's just listening when you say, okay, Google. And she said, well, in order for it to hear you say, okay, Google, it's listening to you all the time.
4: There's a specific setting where it doesn't, uh, by default, listen. So you, uh, you as a user, say, "Hey, I want you're this opt-in. to work, so that sure. I can just call." There's an opt-in. There's more details I can go into, but um, m- basically, we make sure that it's limited to the hotword recognition. That is, we don't store anything other than what's required to recognize whether you're saying, "Okay, Google."
0: So there are sort of like layers. Of recognition here in terms of the way that the system works.
4: That's right, and that's the minimum possible thing to rec- to, to see whether you know it's almost like should the assistant perk up when uh, when you're saying anything, uh, but there's nothing beyond that.
0: Let me ask you what you're worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you what, what do you need to be careful of ethically as you move forward into this space?
4: Uh, To be perfectly uh, candid with you, I think, again, these are early, this is a really early space in assistance, but the stakes are much higher than any other information products.
0: I think there are more, you know, insidious potentials here. And as a company, you guys must think a lot about that.
4: So there's a couple of principles we've baked into the products, be it the proactive assistance or voice and what have you. One of them is this notion of control. Right? So that is, it's explicitly opt-in. The user can turn off any of these things at any given time. The other principle is kind of this notion of transparency and making sure that whatever data is being used is explicit and it's reflected to the user. So that way, again, like they're in the driver's seat, they get to choose uh, what's useful for them versus not.
0: So says Google, a company whose entire business is built on information, giving it to you and getting it from you so that it can make money from advertising that has you as a target. Stick with us for a minute. We'll be right back.
1: Z-N-R-I-I-L
0: Okay, Google. Who are you?
1: Searching for oneself can take a lifetime, but a good place to start is classic rock.
0: A good place to start is classic rock? That's awesome. Okay, Google. What's an Atbash cipher?
1: The Atbash cipher is a substitution cipher with a specific key where the letters of the alphabet are reversed.
0: In the 21st century, interacting with computers is becoming essential. For some, being able to talk to a computer is the only way you can interact with it. I learned this by watching one of my best friends, in the midst of his prime as a young man, become crippled by something that neither he nor anyone around him could understand. He lives near me, in Brooklyn.
6: Hey guys. Hey. How are you all? Good, how are you? Good.
0: Dan Kare and I moved to New York City together with our friend Craig in 2006 after college. Yeah, we did. 10 years ago? Yes. Into an apartment with an inordinate amount of mice.
6: Well, I do think you did play some role in enticing the mice to come live in our apartment. I just want to say on the record about this.
0: We were in our mid-20s. Out of all of our friends, Dan might have been the most physically fit. He played water polo in college. He had studied abroad in Mongolia, riding horses bareback in the snow with his yurt-dwelling hosts. But a few years into our New York adventure, something happened to Dan, just as he was leaving work one night.
6: There was a closet door right next to my desk where I kept my coat, and it was at the end of the day. And I remember opening the closet door and um, sort of my wrist felt kind of floppy, kind of weak. But I was like rushing off and I just grabbed my coat and went out. And that was, I think, like the first moment.
0: Dan was feeling this pain in both arms and it started to get hard to do basic tasks, like the tasks he was supposed to be doing all day at his desk job. But he kept trying. So his workplace tried to make his life easier.
6: They built me a little tiny tiny cubicle, and I would have like ice packs strapped to my arms. And I had like a roll- mouse rollerball, and I had a breastfeeding pillow on my lap that my arms would rest on while I typed. I just looked nuts. I really couldn't do the work anymore. But I didn't want to leave the job who would ever hire me a disabled philosophy major.
0: Dan was going to doctors. All in all, he went to almost 30 separate specialists. Nobody could figure it out. What did that feel like, to have something that was wrong with you that like seemed like a mystery to literally everyone, except you?
6: Uh, it was a mystery to me, also. You know, we tried on different diagnoses, Lyme disease, neuropathy, ALS, MS, cancer, so I sort of like lived through the like the roller coasters of not knowing, is it one of these things while the test results were waiting to come back. This whole thing was getting to him. I felt a lot of shame about my condition because I've always been strong and healthy and I looked healthy, but I... You still look healthy. Thank you. But I, you know, like people at the grocery counter would need to press the buttons for me, you know, on the, on the, the, the credit card machines.
0: Eventually, Dan really hit rock bottom. He was laid off. He went on disability, then unemployment. Every day, he was utterly dependent on his fiancée, Nomi.
6: She would, like, leave my food out for me, like, leave leave food in the microwave with the timer set, and I would use my toe to press it, and she would leave out, like, multiple glasses with straws so I didn't have to lift them, and she would get me dressed in the morning, and she would, like, shampoo my hair, and soap me, and and then I would just wait like a golden retriever until she came home. Dan never
0: found out what was wrong with him or made a full recovery. When you see him now, though, his life is different. He can make phone calls, push the buttons on the credit card machine or the ATM. You would never know he has this disability. He even teaches swimming now, part of this discipline he found called the Alexander Technique, And part of the reason he is able to do any of this is because he's made a huge transition to voice recognition software on his phone,
6: tablet, computer. Watching him use this software is fascinating. I'm sending an email. I'm going to teach somewhere tomorrow and I need to let them know who I'm going to teach and their, like, emergency contact info. It's at this place called the JCC. Wake up. Close tab. Tab. Numeral 2, cap art of swimming lessons scheduled for tomorrow tab, cap deer, cap aquatic staff, comma, new paragraph, go to sleep. This stuff, the little stuff,
0: what we are all doing all the time, emails, texts, whatever, not doing this stuff physically, doing it with voice recognition, has vastly reduced Dan's pain. And it has allowed him to do the most important things. Feed himself, run a business, pick up his daughter. Do you think that this technology
6: has, um properties of salvation it certainly does for the disabled there's one level of voice recognition that's like kind of there's like the cool level like oh you're you can just like quickly like bang off a text but then there's like the level of voice recognition for people who like actually have a disability and they need it to be like end to end um not hand dependent or whatever their trigger is right um yeah, I mean, I think about even just 20 years ago, well, no, even last probably 15 years ago of this, I would basically be a, you know, I don't know what You'd I be would be screwed. Yeah, I'd be screwed.
0: Dan is currently working on a book about his experience, working title, Don't Get Better. Working style, dictation. Okay, Google. What is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything?
1: The answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42.
0: I-H-T-R-U-G. Okay, Google. Beam me up, Scotty.
1: Ah, can I do it, Captain? Ah, do not have the power.
0: Not bad. Recognition is also becoming extremely important for our self-driving car future. In a real-life accident situation, you don't really get do-overs. And considering the fact that these things are already on the roads, from beer delivery trucks in Colorado to Uber rides in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, we wanted to know, how does a self-driving vehicle recognize objects in a life-or-death situation? So we met Business Insider Transportation Editor, Katie Thompson, for a nice quiet chat in Midtown Manhattan. (laughs) Katie. How are you?
7: I'm good. How are you, Ben?
0: I'm good. All of these are humans yes. driving these cars, using all of their senses to drive safely and effectively. How do self-driving cars do that?
7: Well, they function a lot like a human does. So when you're driving a car, you're using your eyes, you're using your ears, you're using you know your perception, your sense of touch even, to feel the road beneath you to really interpret what's going on, right? To understand the environment that you're in. It's the same thing for self-driving cars, except you are trying to model human behavior using sensors and collecting data from those sensors. So for example, you would use camera sensors to collect picture images of the world around it. Then you also use radar to sort of gauge distance.
0: And the car is processing all of this in real time?
7: The car is processing all of this in real time. It kind of has to, or you'll die. <laughs> no, no, <but laughs> um, so yeah, so that's sort of a big part of self-driving cars.
0: This is where it gets interesting for me because I feel like as humans, we have a long time to learn how to judge distance, speed, what an object is. Maybe that's the most important thing, what an object is in some ways. How do cars know the difference between a garbage bag and a human child?
7: They have to be trained, just like humans. When you're a kid and you're born, you know nothing, but your parents or whoever raised you is constantly pointing out things so that you learn to recognize it, right? That's a tree, that's a street, that's a car. You learn these things over time, and it's the same way with self-driving cars, or at least a lot of teams developing this technology are using machine learning, which in essence is the same idea. Show the car over and over again,
0: Tree, 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 right. not tree. And it
7: teaches itself through machine learning that that's a tree and this is what all the trees look like so that it can identify them appropriately and respond to them when they're maybe on the same path as a tree so they can avoid it.
0: This again sounds seems so complicated to it me. It is. It's right? complicated, yeah. Because like, an autonomous vehicle shouldn't swerve out of the way of a dog and hit a cyclist. And I know that this is trying to be figured out right now, this this kind of like ethics of self-driving vehicles, right? Yeah. Where are we at on that?
7: So it gets raised a lot, but it's not something that, and it should be talked about and we should help create policies for it. But the whole idea of a self-driving car is to avoid those situations to begin with, right? Like it has sensors all over the car. It's collecting more data than we could ever collect as human drivers. So it has a much better sense It's done correctly of the world around it and how to interpret it so in theory you're not going to run into a lot of those like ethical dilemmas because the car will be driving down the street and it will see that there's a human being in the car with the door open so it's going to automatically go slower and be more cautious Mm -hmm. whereas human beings might miss that marker right and because it has all this access to data it can look at something and predict how something's going to behave theoretically theoretically
0: Katie Thompson. She is transportation editor for Business Insider. Katie, thanks for hanging out in uh, Midtown in the uh, afternoon rush with me.
7: (laughs) Thank you, Ben.
0: (laughs) People who think self-driving cars are a positive development in transportation say they will save lives by taking humans out of the equation. And people need saving. Driving in America is a dangerous activity, especially right now. The first half of 2015 saw an 8% rise in fatal car accidents. That's according to the National Safety Council. This could be an ironic outcome of a healthier economy. More people traveling in cars, buying gas. We've been looking at how well these recognition systems know us. But do they know us better than we know ourselves? For our last story, we're going to hear from a startup called Three Day Rule. Sometimes it's all about salvation from loneliness. Three Day Rule is using facial recognition software to play matchmaker. The software works in concert with human matchmakers. One of those matchmakers is Adele Gomelsky-Kelleher.
2: You know what's really easy? If you think of a guy named Mel and he likes to ski, you're going to tell him, Go, Mel, ski.
0: Gomelsky. All right. She's not just an employee, though. She's also a former client.
2: It wasn't hard to meet people. It was hard to meet the right kind of people. I thought I had a type.
0: Yeah. And what's the type? I was. What'd you think?
2: (laughs) Kind of a, a dorkable look, uh, mm. darker features. And so that's exactly what I told my matchmaker. And not only did I tell her that, but I provided her with pictures of, you know, men that I thought were attractive, either guys I dated in the past. Do or they have you know, dark hair
0: and dark eyes, etc.?
2: That is correct.
0: The matchmaker from Three Day Rule loaded Adele's photos into the software and it picked out a guy. What do he look like?
2: He was blonde and blue eyes and... I remember looking at this picture saying, I do not know what to do with this guy. (laughs) Interesting. I I literally had never in my life dated blonde and blue eyes. And I was very skeptical and kind of said, no, thank you. Like, just going to pass on this one.
0: Here's the thing. The software apparently knew what Adele didn't. It's all about face structure. So the human matchmakers at Three Day Rule usually ask clients for photos of their exes. Because whatever a client says about what they want, the photo history of their love life tells a different story.
2: Did you have exes that looked like this guy? From a facial structure perspective? Uh-huh. Yes. All of the guys I dated, they all had that same face structure. What's the structure? Probably a mix between oval and angular. straw jaw, okay. beautiful big eyes. Okay bless technology for being able to find that for me because realistically i probably wouldn't have even given him a chance if it wasn't for the mix of the technology and my matchmaker's intuition kind of helping me along
0: i feel like it's weird like it's like a potentially painful like if someone was like we're going to do this and do it right give me the photos of the women you've failed with <laughs>
2: that's rough. I never thought of it that way. I never thought of it as here are pictures of failures. Instead, I looked at it as here are pictures of men I once was excited about possibilities with. And if providing that to a matchmaker means that it can be something great in my life moving forward, then why not?
0: Yes, why not? To answer that, let's jump from Adele Gomelsky-Kelleher to company CEO Talia Goldstein. We should note that you're not cheap.
8: So we have two options. You can join for free and be matched with our clients, or you can join to be a client and the price is around $7,000 for six months.
0: What this means is that if you join for free, you will be input into the company's database that will look at your face and compare it to someone's ex and see if it's similar enough to make you into their new boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe you become their next ex. If you can picture your face among a bunch of other similar faces in someone's romantic history and not get weirded out, I commend you. But this is a foundational part of Talia's business.
8: It would be so nice if I could just snap a photo, it recognizes your face, and then tells me information about you. And then in person, I can say, oh, I see that you're into X, Y, and Z. I totally have a match for you in real time.
0: How would you feel if someone did that to you, though?
8: If they had the love of my life, I would say, let's chat.
0: You're not worried about potential negative impacts of that in the real world?
8: I am slightly worried about that. I think if any any random person has that ability to snap a photo at a train station of somebody, I think that could get dangerous. Uh Uh-huh. But for me, as a matchmaker and as somebody that has a tech-enabled matchmaking company, it's really exciting.
0: Talia Goldstein, CEO of Three Day Rule. Talia, thank you very much. Thank you. We've heard a lot of stories about recognition of all kinds, so let's wrap it up with Nicole Sanchez. She is vice president of social impact at GitHub. GitHub is a company and a website for coders to collaborate and share software and software solutions in an open source way. Nicole, thanks for chatting.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: How do you feel after listening to all of this stuff?
5: Well, obviously I feel very hopeful. I think there's a lot of positive stuff in this discussion about AI and where machine learning is going. It's definitely improved people's lives and in some cases saved people's lives. I do think, however, there's another side to that story that we need to be really cognizant of.
0: Go on.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the thing that we always have to remember is that humans build this. And so human biases, human loves and hates and The drama of the human condition gets built into the code, and so the notion that we would come out with something clean or, you know, a blank canvas that could then be taught all of these amazing things isn't quite right because humans embed all of their stuff in the code, Take into account something like uh, Microsoft's last couple of experiments with AI chat bots. Oh, Tay. Yeah. <laughs> so Tay was learning from Twitter. She started aggregating tweets that were very hateful, racist, homophobic, really horrific things that she learned from combing human interactions online.
0: Right. What do you use in the, in the voice recognition department or image? I mean, do you use any of this stuff?
5: I do. I've been personally been exper- experimenting a lot with Siri only because she is ubiquitous. Sure. And I'm wondering, it might have been Dan who said his, his mother said, well, it must be listening to you all the time.
0: Oh, yeah. No, that and was so, me. But I'm sure he's oh, had that, was that you, conversation right? as well. Yeah.
5: Right. And so we're constantly trying to fool Siri. This happened to, to me last night. I was watching a, a TV show and I and I always try and put my, my iPhone near the TV because I want to see what Siri is going to pick up. And apparently, somebody said "Hey," and Siri turned on. Uh-huh. And I thought, "Oh, that's interesting." Now you're listening to the television. You didn't know words. that that was a re- yeah. right, that was a recorded voice versus a live voice. I'm I'm constantly thinking about the the uses of this, specifically because I'm interested in the disparate impact that misuse of software has on certain vulnerable communities.
0: Well, we should we should also connect this to the fact that all of these voice assistants are female, right?
5: Yeah, well, I recently just changed my Siri to be a British man, and I, I really wanted to know how he was going to pick up on my pronunciation of things. And? Well, you know, my last my friend, who, whose last name is Wagner, it'll only let me call him Wagner. So that's interesting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the default here is problematic, too. And that's true of not just Apple and Google now, but also Cortana.
5: My One of my favorite tweets of all time. Uh, A woman who is an engineer, she's a black woman uh, in software engineering, and she she tweeted, when my car told me to turn left on Malcolm 10 Boulevard, I knew there were no black engineers at that company. And the funny thing is, (laughs) you know, what do we tell it to default to? Right. The X. You would never say Malcolm X. That must be a Roman numeral 10. What could X possibly mean? And these are the subtle cues that we have a long way to go in determining who's going to be building the software. And this is why I'm so dogmatic about making sure that people from all backgrounds have a, a chance to be software creators and not just consumers.
0: Do you think voice recognition software and face recognition software can save us?
5: You told a great story about Dan. If for nothing else, that people who have limited capability in a physical sense will be able to fully participate. And I think that once you can get, you know, the the discrimination that's built into facial recognition sorted out with lighting and and those kinds of things, then it's going to be it's going to be remarkable what we're able to do. And I think voice recognition as well in terms of people with limited mobility fully participating is going to be critical. What could you imagine not not being able to um, this isn't voice recognition, but this is voice expression. You know, Stephen Hawking, we're still able to hear from Stephen Hawking despite his his serious physical disabilities and so i think about it much more in terms of it as a tool for participation as opposed to it as a as an end in and of itself
0: nicole sanchez she is vice president of social impact at the company github nicole thank you very much thank you By the way, if you want access to all of this season's episodes, you don't have to wait for them to come out. You do have to find the code hidden in this episode, though. Did you find it yet? To unlock the next episode, you can input the code at the website codebreaker.codes. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to our show and the other good stuff from Marketplace. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. Helps us out. Also, if you need a code hint or you just want to say, hey, hit us up at codebreaker at marketplace.org. Our show is produced by Claire Tennesketter. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Our engineer is Jake Gorski. We got production support from Adrian Ma and Marketplace tech producer Stephanie Hughes. Marketplace's executive producer is Satara Nieves. Our vice president is Deborah Clark. Our theme music is by Mux Mool. Our show is made in partnership with the nice folks at Tech Insider and their robot overlord, Dan Bobkoff. You can get updated on their stories and much more at businessinsider.com. Hey, just don't believe what they say about us.
2: Kind of a a dorkable look.
0: I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Codebreaker is a Marketplace production from APM.